Okay, everybody, welcome back. Uh, this week, uh, Peter and I, welcome, Peter. Welcome, John. Uh, Peter and I are going to discuss uh, Ex Machina, which I believe I pronounced correctly. Uh, 2014 film uh, written and directed by Alex Garland, uh, starring Alicia Vikander, Oscar Isaac, and I believe it's pronounced Domhnall Gleeson. Yeah, this is a, uh, this is a real return to... Um a real sci-fi movie for us. Although actually we have done a couple recently, but, uh, but this is, this is really, really science fiction, right? This is hard sci-fi. Yep. Of the um, old, the original mold of science fiction. Um, and, uh, we've discussed Alex Garland in the past on this podcast. He wrote and largely directed dread, right? Which we liked. Yeah, which which I really liked. Uh, I'm, I'm, right. I think we acknowledge in that podcast that I'm I'm a pretty big Dread fan. Um, so this is um, this is a pretty dark movie. Uh, there's not there's not a lot of uh, giggles in this one. <laughs> this is a a serious and dark look, essentially at the coming of the singularity. Yeah, I would say it's dark but beautiful. It's sort yeah, of a. I, it's sort of a play, you know, it's, it's almost like a, a play on screen because it right. doesn't, there's, there's it's, three it's a, members of the cast. Right. And it's in, it's relatively interior. Um, right. It's a bottle show as they say. Exactly. And, uh, uh basically the, you know, the, 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 very short summary is that, uh, the story, uh, is about a, a sort of a guy who's a big tech CEO in the mold of maybe Facebook, I think it's called Blue Book. So it's Book. Facebook, Google, something. Google. Right. And this guy has sort of squirreled himself away. The, the original founder of the company, who's a, a genius, has squirreled himself away in some very remote little ho- house uh, out in the middle of nowhere that you need to take a helicopter to and then walk from the helicopter landing site. And um, they have a, a contest and a programmer at the company wins and he gets to go spend a week there and he doesn't know why. And the reason he's there is to perform essentially a modified Turing test on an artificial intelligence robot that the guy's been working on. That's what, that's what the CEO Nathan has been working on for the last years or whatever, since he's been in isolation. And, um, the, uh, Kale of the programmer ends up becoming involved with the AI and, um, the, the movies about their, the three of their interaction among the three of them. And it's about what, uh, uh, you know, what an artificial intelligence is like and what human emotion is like in relation. And, uh, the movie ends with a relatively tragic, uh, ending. Um, right. Which the movie is from 2015, 2014. Right. So I think we can, we can have a we can give it away. written, written podcast. Right. Here. So, the the robot Ava ends up killing Nathan, her creator, and escaping. And she plays um, she plays the programmer Caleb, who's visiting, to help her escape. And Nathan expected that, and that was actually in large part the test itself was to see whether she could manipulate him in that way. And um, even though that happens unexpectedly she is able to escape so he um so that the ending is tragic when she kills him and runs away and traps the programmer in the house you know she right. kills our creator and, and, then, and as goes i into said the world. in this podcast about a half a dozen times now you know this is yet another 
Frankenstein. Like half of all or more of all science fiction is Frankenstein, and this is no exception. Right, and it, it's it's beautiful looking, and it has, as you said, it's it's not uh, not light. Um, no, I had to watch it in pieces. I saw it in the theater the first time I saw it, but this time I kind of had to watch it in pieces to sort of give myself pause and a little time to think as it went on. Yeah, this is uh, the second time I've seen it, and um, I I liked it a lot the first time. I think I probably liked it even better this time, but you're right, it's, yeah, it's a I, little... I liked rough. it more. I think I got more out of it this time. Do you want to define a Turing test, by the way, for the audience? That's an excellent idea. So a, a Turing test named after Alan Turing, who was, you know, the tragic one of the tragic founders right. of computer science uh, in Britain right. um, is where a human interacts with a computer. Um, it's essentially done with typing, let's say, so that you can't tell whether you're interacting with a human or a computer on the other end of the, of the line, basically as if like a text window. And when you interact with them in the end, you can't tell if it's a human or a computer. And then that's passing the test. If you can tell that you're interacting with a computer, it fails the Turing test. But, you know, I think that the Turing test is just one of several tests going on in this movie. And, for example, Nathan is testing Caleb. Caleb is testing Ava. And as we see, Ava is really testing Caleb the whole time. So they're all sort of going in circles or after each other. Right. And, and then the, the, the third person uh, at the Mountain Highway that we should just mention is the mute Asian Kyoko uh, who we are told, sorry, we are told speaks no English as a security precaution so that she can't learn Nathan's trade secrets. Hmm. And he treats her horribly. Right, she's very she, abusive. She's her. another robot. Right, although it's not immediately apparent that she's a robot. Right. Um, so just a few uh, comments on casting. Um, I think it's interesting that... Um, Domhnall Gleeson and Oscar Isaac uh, have essentially inverted their roles here from their roles in the Star Wars movies because Oscar Isaac plays Poe Dameron, essentially the, the good-natured hero, and Domhnall Gleeson plays General Hux, the severe villain. Like here, they're sort of flipping those roles, uh, which I thought was sort of interesting. Um, and they've done, you know, they now have at least three movies together. And, you know, it's funny because I didn't even recognize that that, that, that was the same guy. Uh, when I, like, for example, this came out before The Force Awakens. And when I saw The Force Awakens, I didn't even recognize that that was the same guy who had played Nathan in this movie. He looks so different. Yeah. Um, well, he gets to act in a real role in this movie and shine. Yeah, yeah he's, there's a lot more for him to chew on in this. And, you know, the by the way, he's given that heavy beard. Uh, to uh, sort of as a nod to Stanley Kubrick, the idea of the bearded <laughs> recluse genius. That was a little wink-wink to Kubrick. And then it's also, I think, worth uh, calling out, and I think I've even mentioned this before, <clears throat> the second episode, sorry, the first episode of the second season of Black Mirror is called Be Right Back, which also stars Domhnall Gleeson in, a, in a, a movie that's very similar to this. And, and that's about a woman whose husband dies, and then she essentially... Uh, purchases an AI simulacrum of of him, um, so he's it's sort of he plays the robot in that one. Mm -hmm. 
And then uh, that's pretty much the whole cast, with the exception of uh, Sonoya Mizuno, who plays Kyoko. Everybody else is on screen for literally seconds, practically. Right. Um, so, um, you know, this movie starts out as a fish-out-of-water story, right? Uh, Caleb he, he uh, ostensibly wins... Uh, the contest to come out and and come out and I think the opening celebration contrasts with the the awful reality that he is about to walk into. Uh, you know, they have him fly out in the helicopter in his sort of suit and sneakers to basically make him look sort of gangly and awkward, even to the point like when the key card takes his picture, <laughs> you know, so grimacing and looks like a doofus. Yeah, that right? was a uh, that's like that's just a little joke about you know pictures on ids too that that was very funny right but it's also the the stamp that the computers see him by and he looks terrible (laughs) um and then you know isaac is you know you know he's kind of cavalier bordering on malevolent like right from the start you know like this is supposed to be the hugest thing that's ever happened to caleb and, you know, he shows up and, like, Nathan hasn't showered. He probably stinks from working out. You know, he's like, oh, yeah, hey, man, it's great you're here. Like, like it's very, very, you know, uh, off-putting, I think, to, to Caleb right off the bat. Yeah, and it, it starts – it's so isolated, this place, that you, you're really not sure what to expect. And it the movie places you – squarely from Caleb, the visiting programmer's point of view, where you have no idea what's going on. It's this beautiful, isolated house and complex underneath. And um, you don't know what to expect. And then the movie gradually delivers sort of a, a underlying aggression and confrontation with, with Nathan that turns Nathan sort of villainous gradually as the movie goes on. And it turns out, you know, that, that Nathan really played this up. I mean, he, um, he, he wanted to provide an opportunity for them to plan an escape. Um, so he, you know, he probably, or he may actually be an alcoholic getting drunk and passing out. So to give him an opportunity to steal his key card, et cetera. Uh, so he probably is really that way, but there's definitely a willing, there's a planned component that's, uh, strategically thought out by Nathan ahead of time. And he may, not, he may even have done this before um, because he's gone through so many iterations of AIs and robots that, you know, you sort of find out later that, you know, he's probably right. done this a hundred five prior ones that you right, see, but, some, of, some of which have committed suicide. Right. And, and not only the, are there five, you see the one destroy itself. Not only are there are five prior, but he, he, he doesn't in point, iterations as, as software does. So, you know, five may have gone from 5.0 to 5.90. <laughs> so he's right. done this, you know, he's clearly worked on this for years and nothing really, nothing else. Uh, and, out you of- know, the house has, the whole house has an air of malevolence to it. Like, even though it's sort of beautiful and ultra modern, like Caleb is told directly, he has very limited access. It's sort of Jane Eyre-esque. Like, whatever happens, don't go in that room. You're not allowed in that room. And, you know, the power comes on and off. When the power goes off, uh, they're essentially on lockdown, and and his card doesn't work, and he's trapped wherever he happens to be when the power goes down. You know, we find out later that maybe, maybe Ava is causing the power outages, or maybe 
she's causing the power outages with Nathan's implicit blessing because he knows that it's a chance to observe Ava acting when she thinks she's not being observed. Like, you right. never actually know if the power blackouts are real or fake. Right. He probably let him go because he put that camera in so that he could watch them. Uh, right. Although a, it's a also hard to believe camera. that there, there weren't already cameras there to to observe them. Right. I mean, he, he clearly... The only time he's surprised is the fact that I guess he underestimated Caleb, the programmer, a little bit, and that Caleb went in ahead of time and rather rapidly um, recoded some of his software so that they could escape. And I think he maybe didn't expect Caleb to do it ahead of time. And every other time, he predicts 100% what's going to happen. well, but but he he. I mean, Caleb is found out when he does that. I mean, I think both Caleb and Nathan, you can say, are a little like they're a little too smart for their own good. Like both mm-hmm. of them think that, you know, they're going to be able to pull off their goals, and in the end, none of them do. Correct. Right. And and Ava, Ava kind of is able to pull one over on everyone. Right. Uh, at the end, you know, I mean. When Nathan is stabbed at the end of the movie, spoiler, uh, but when Nathan is stabbed at the end of the movie, uh, I by Kyoko first, right, uh, and then uh, essentially stabbed to death by Ava, you know, his expression is, is more of surprise than anything else. Like, he just did not believe that this could have happened to him. Like, it could have turned on him so completely. Yes. Um, and He's again, you know, very surprised. Right, and and Caleb is taken in by Ava, who he's clearly attracted to. Yep, uh, and I imagine most people would be. Um, and you know, when she turns on him, he doesn't see it coming either, and he really believes that they're going to run off together to the helicopter. And she has absolutely zero intention of taking him with him. Yes, her, and, and she in the end becomes the most scary um, quote villain in the story. Uh, right at the very end of the movie. I mean, sort of, sort of who's the morality of the movie, it shifts throughout. And the sort of the spotlight, your judgment about what's happening and what's moral and what's good and bad and what's really taking place and where should you censure and where should you approve is played with throughout the movie until the end when you really realize that probably she is, she's the most frightening thing in the movie. By right. Far. The most calculating. And when she leaves, she doesn't even look back. Like he's pounding on the door in terror and she doesn't even turn to look at him. She just walks out the door. She has you zero know, concerns um, for either well, one other, of them in the end. Right. And the other thing I thought was really interesting, that I didn't actually notice the first time I saw it is, is in to strengthen the argument that maybe, that you know she's testing Caleb all along is is it says Ava session seven before the last day uh, right. when she never actually meets with Caleb but it's all sort of it implies that she is more running the show than you think. Oh, uh, she she sure is. And and again, and it, as you go through as you go through, for example, all of Caleb's sessions with with Ava, you know, he starts off being much more formal with her. Right. He sort of has this sort of juvenile haircut and aspect to the way that he looks and acts. And, you know, he is meant to be very much um, genuine with her. Like he's honest with her. And the few times that he lies, he's really just sort of lying to protect himself. And she calls him on it. 
Right. Um, but as their interactions go on, she starts directing the conversation more and more, and he becomes almost more passive as time goes on, whereas in the beginning he was leading the discussion, but it, it all turns on him. You can sort of see you can see foreshadowing of her right. taking over throughout their sessions together. Right. Uh, and by then, things are on the slippery slope to the end. It's really like their last real session where she starts to take over and she reveals that she's able to see through him entirely. He can't hide anything from her. She's learned how to manipulate him perfectly. And, um, you're, you're not, you're never sure who's right, whose motivation is, is good, whose motivation is bad. Um, you're not really sure. And in the end, I guess you know that she she's the certainly the most calculating she's not very she has really virtually no empathy meaning the ai ava and um which that's what's she's truly purely self looking out motivated. for self interest yeah right. self motivated it's very scary and and then in the end i guess nathan is sort of redeemed but on the other hand he's a bit um you know, it's, he's questionable, let's say. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if you can say Nathan is redeemed. I mean, for example, the the scene where, you know, she's out, like Kyoko frees her, and she's out in the hallway when she's running at Nathan, and he's, like, screaming no, no, no at her. You know, they, they essentially get into a tussle, and he shatters her arm with a bar from a, a, a barbell set. You know, he doesn't hesitate to smash her. So I don't know right. if you could say Nathan is redeemed at all. You know, and then he, he essentially kills Kyoko with the same bar a minute later. Right. But uh, at that point, he, he realizes that there's danger. So right. he, they've, they've really turned. And they're also, he can rebuild them. You know, they're not the same as a person. Like, he, you know, he, they're interchangeable to a certain extent. And then she goes and gets a new arm, you know. So um, she meaning the AI, Ava. Right, so. Ava. Uh, you know, she takes an arm off of another failed prior model. Right, she repairs herself on her way out the door. Um, right, and she takes Kyoko's skin essentially. Right, and um, it's uh, you know, it, it's I got. I mean, it's Alex Garland, very impressive. I gotta say. Yeah. Well, I mean. The guy's got talent. I, this was you know, his I, first true directing credit, by the way. Right, exactly. He's not listed as the director on Dread, but Carl Urban publicly said that he directed Dread. Like, the other guy had so little input, and Garland just sort of took over everything. Right. Um, but I think that this is the coldest movie we've watched since Under Her Skin. Like, yeah. like this, you know... Oh, by the, by the way, this movie, I was thinking about it, the end of this movie is, for all intents and purposes the beginning of under her skin if you mm. think about it right you could almost imagine one flows into the other and you could also further imagine that uh this movie and her are almost in the same universe right right like you could imagine caleb being good friends with joaquin phoenix's character from her yeah um but you know there's i mean this movie i think is part of like a a long lineage of related films and books and novels and comics, you know, the idea of the, you know, 
I mean, A, the Frankenstein aspect, but B, there's also, if you sort of just, if you just winnow it down to AI, mm-hmm. right? Like this is, like, for example, Ava uh, openly frets about being turned off, sort of mm-hmm. analogous to Hal in 2001, yep. right? Neuromancer is all about the AI wanting to be freed. Right. Uh, and and in, in Neuromancer, which I know you're a big fan of, Case's job is essentially to to hack the AI so that it can be freed. Slant by Greg Bear is also to some extent about AIs trying to get free. Um, a lot of the themes in this movie are touched on in the new Battlestar Galactica. Um, yeah. And also, for example, even in uh, two Star Trek examples, one is obviously Noonien Sung, the creator of both Data and Lore, right? Lore is Data's brother, who essentially wants to be free. Um, and uh, a lot of the big ideas in this movie are in the original series episode, What Are Little Girls Made Of? Mm-hmm. Uh, where you know where they find the the android AI Roger, colony underneath uh, the ground, right? I am Roger Corby. Um, Damn it, Mister Spock, you're half breed. Tell it, you're half breed. Right, but I mean, like, I mean, and and again, you can't mention this movie without talking about Blade Runner. But but you know, these are you know, like this is what people worry about with with AIs. Like, will the AIs surpass us, destroy us? You know make their own make you know get us out of their way essentially sure it's you know there's a handful of very very common themes in science fiction that that are born out of fairly obvious concerns right uh you know aliens invading um uh, the the dangers of technology and then a subset of that is more specifically uh the dangers of artificial intelligence and um uh, I don't know, medical, the dangerous te- technology has a, has a lot of right. uh, subsets, medical. Right. Oh, medical I just thought of another one, by the way. This yeah. is also Pinocchio, right? Yeah. Right. right. Um, I thought it was interesting, by the way. So, that's, you know, how you, since, that's how you'd pitch it. You know, Pinocchio, it's kind of like Pinocchio meets Frankenstein <laughs> plus 2001. And the Terminator. <laughs> right. And Arnold um, is not in it, though. But, you know, also, I like that. One thing that I thought was well done is, you know, even though Caleb is shown to have scars, right? We learned that he's he was seriously injured in a car accident that took his parents' lives. You know, he still isn't sure at one point if he's a person. You know, he actually goes so far as to cut himself and see if he bleeds because he's so freaked out by everything that's happening to him at this house over the course of this week. Right, and he's mostly freaked out by Ava. Um because I mean, he's partly paranoid because he knows he's being watched, and there's this sort of, and, the, and there's drinking and and all and, this and recording, debauchery. and debauchery. Right. I mean, Nathan, Nathan and, is screwing Kyoko. I mean, he they, they have an explicit conversation about the fact that the 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 AIs, the robots, are capable of sex. They have working sexual organs that that would stimulate that. And and they they have a sexuality that he says he created in them because it's part of being intelligent. He says it's part of being uh, a, a mammal that's evolved, um, and you know he describes that. So he seems to have put it in their programming, right? And, like he he just says like, why would a gray box interact with anybody, right? <laughs> Which well, is a really good way to put it. Very and well it also put. Sort of it also sort of gets around the sort of awkwardness of the fact that he built an anthropomorphic you know AI, right? And. Uh, Go ahead. No, I mean, uh, it, 
Right. So the, it, this is the updated modern Turing test. It's the, it's, it is definitely a very, it owes a lot to 2001. Not that, you know, a lot of things do, of course, but um, in, in the way that the, the artificial intelligence is, is revealed to be um, self-serving and not have, and be truly a different creature that looks after itself, right? Um, in the way that Hal sort of is revealed to be dangerous, so is, so is Ava. Right, and Hal's essentially a gray box, by the way. Um, Hal's a gray box, but his body is the ship. Right, he is the discovery. Right, so he um, so he inter- so he sort of lives through that's that's his body. I mean, the, the, they live inside of him essentially. I mean, you know, I remember when we talked about Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Right as it was ending, I went on Amazon and I bought us each uh, the AI from that. Joy, mine, mine's mine arrived and she's running around the house somewhere. I don't know where yours is. I sent you one, um, but you know, like between Blade Runner twenty forty nine and this, you know, there's been a. These are sort of the modern, I guess, the modern version of the fembot, right? The idea of like the female AI. I mean, again, here there's explicit talk that you could have. A physical relationship with it it's sort of right sort of interesting that they don't bother hinting they just they just say it and largely show it i mean nathan is essentially shown to be intimate with kyoko right uh, but on the other hand he's up there in that little house in the middle of nowhere all alone um, yeah, yeah right well this is always you can only doing. watch so much netflix you know this is um, it. This is what he's been doing for years. And he, he's a genius, Nathan. And he's, he's figured out, he's made this massive progress in artificial intelligence and robotics. Although and, it's a little hard to believe that he did it all up there by himself. Like, I mean, again, like maybe he's the greatest coder in the history of the world. But, but is, he, is he, you know, is he going to work the lathe to make the parts? You know what I mean? Like, I sort of got the idea that there were a lot of people coming and going, bringing him stuff. Most notably yeah. food. Oh yeah, I'm sure that obviously it's it's implied that there are a lot of that there are a lot of things he has sent in and and I'm sure that that machined parts and components are a big portion of that. I mean, it just is he has unlimited money, so it's sort of implied that he just he gets what he does whatever he wants. So he doesn't care if it costs, you know, he has a bottle of mineral water, probably the the total cost of that bottle is probably like 20 bucks instead of like 75 <laughs> right. cents, you know? Right. Cause it had to be flown in on the helicopter. Flown in you know, by the way, the, yeah, the house is a hotel that you can go to. The house is the uh, hotel in Norway. And if you look yeah. online, people go to the hotel and sort of like take pictures of themselves running up and down the hall, sort of recreating scenes from the movie. But most of it, not all of it, but most of it is, is a hotel in Norway. And then I think they, um, I think they just, they built a bunch of sets probably based on that because I know they film most of it in, uh, in London in the studio. Right. I think at Elstree, wasn't it? Pinewood, I think. Pinewood, but, yeah. But, they, but um, the movie cost nothing. This whole thing cost 15 million, which is nothing. I know. And the effects look terrific. I mean, it there's won, a lot it of... It won the Academy Award for best effects, this movie. I, I wonder how he got it done so cheaply considering it looks so good. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm amazed by it. I read that they filmed it flat. Like, they just filmed it with the actors, and then everything was added in post. Every last right. thing was added in post. Although, I think that Ava's 
effects and Kyoko's effects look phenomenal. But the one bad effect in this is the knife. Like when they the stab him, the knife and the blood look very fake. Yes. They couldn't, like the knife, they couldn't get it right. I yeah. Know. The knife just sort of goes into him and his shirt doesn't really tent in. Like it just looks like that sort of like was the glaring, I think, bad effect. But I think we can forgive them that. Um, I read that there was a, a different ending. Did you read about the alternate ending? No. So the original ending was everything that we saw, and then the the movie ends with her walking up to the helicopter pilot. And I believe that you see but do not hear them have a brief exchange. Hmm. Um, and the original ending was we were going to – the last shot of the movie was that we were going to see – the helicopter pilot from Ava's point of view, and it was going to be soundless and sort of altered and distorted looking, and he would be speaking, and you would just see it as sort of zeros and ones on the screen as she processed the data to sort of drive home how mechanical she really is and to sort of take away any last illusion that she's a person. She's, she is really a, a thinking machine. And it's sort of like, I guess, sort of like an updated version of the way the Terminator sees things. And the Matrix, too, when he sees the Matrix itself as being... Right, streaming. Coding, digits. right. Now, you're, now you're the... You, you took a lot more philosophy courses than I did in college. Um, but did this remind you of Plato in the cave at the end when she leaves? That's what I thought of. I don't know. I guess I wasn't... I was more thinking about it just in light of what she said that her reality, her desire to leave was that, that what she would do when she left was go to an intersection and watch people so that she could figure things out. And then I remember thinking that just within the film, within the context of the film, she actually, she told the truth then like that was a true answer. Cause that's kind of what she does. She goes in the mm -hmm. city and she stands there. Um, right, and she goes to the traffic intersection. But sure, I mean, um, you know, what's real and what can you really see? Um, and the shadows on the, uh, that they will, so it's, you see on the concrete um, at the end, that, that is, uh, it's a reasonable. Yeah, and, and also when she walks out of the stairs, I thought. Right. Um, so I have, I have some problems with the end of the movie. I mean, Again, I, I think I was more accepting of it this time, but the first time I saw it, it rubbed me the wrong way. One is, how does she find the copter? Like, if she, you know, it's implied that the copter drops you off at least a distance from the house. How does she know exactly where to go? Uh, I mean, she sees the helicopter, but then she sort of goes right to it. Um, she doesn't. She she explicitly says that she has a battery, but but she yes. leaves without it. Like, what happens when she runs out of juice? Or is it just anticipated that she's smart enough to build her own? I don't know. I thought that was that was a little odd. Right. They could have had her bring, like, a MacBook charger with her, you know, in a bag. <laughs> little light cord. Um, and I, the first time I saw this, I thought Caleb dies there. But I don't think he dies now. Like, you know, like, the first time I saw it, I thought, like, oh, he's just going to starve to death. You know, he's like, just he's trapped. trapped in that room. Yeah. Right. But, but I imagine Nathan is talking to his company constantly and when he doesn't respond in a day or so they're going to send somebody out so my suspicion is actually that caleb survives it's truly you know, an open somebody ending comes out in a few days right it's a true open ending because you really have no i i guess i would assume that too is that he he is going to get rescued but nathan's dead and you assume and what's going to happen to ava is truly the open ending right is she right. gonna be able to sort of live as a fugitive 
uh, right, or ma- or make other versions of herself, or who knows? Right. Right. So, is this sort of like the Caesar in the Planet of the Apes moment, where you only need one, and it's enough to start a whole race? Yeah, but you know, um, I I think you 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 wonder, but the the movie, the ending is sufficiently engrossing, I guess, because the, it's so dramatic. the The ending is sufficiently dramatic that her escaping the way it changes your viewpoint about the the morality of the movie and, and the true undercurrents of what happened, I guess they just leave it as an open ending because the movie's accomplished what it wanted to accomplish. So just leaving it open doesn't take away from the play itself, you know? Right. I think the, the big weakness of the ending though, and this, I don't think that there's a way around is Caleb is, He's sequestered for the sort of climax of the action. And I think it's a mistake a little bit to take him out of it. Like he essentially stands there like a dummy when the entire climax of the movie happens. And I thought that that was maybe a, a not so good choice. Isn't in he the knocked sense, out though when it happens and then right, he comes down later when she right, leaves? But I mean, he misses the whole thing. Yeah, you know he what I'm saying? It. I mean, I mean, it, it does make you wonder, like, why he's there in the first place. And, like, let's say Caleb was never there. Could all of these events have taken place with the three characters instead of four? Right. I think it's, like it, the Indi- it's like the Indiana Jones problem in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like, if Indy's not there, the story has the exact same ending. And maybe that's <laughs> the same thing here. Well, no, because he plays a key part. He really does allow her to escape. No, um, Kyoko allows her to escape. Yeah, but he programmed, he changed the programming in the house security system beforehand. Right, but again, like, is it, did he really have to be there? I guess what I'm saying is, I think that they should have had him do more. And it would have been interesting if he had even just been in the hallway and seen directly the events where Kyoko and Ava attack Nathan. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think that would have been interesting. Or, or if maybe he had thought he had been in league with them or he had taken part in the attack on Nathan. Like, they could have done more with him, but he does nothing in that whole sequence. I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe you're more okay with it than I am, but it, it, it struck me as a missed opportunity. I think the, the reason I think it it's okay with me is because it keeps him as a bystander. And so it doesn't distract from the key finding in the end that she kills, that she's, that she's becomes, uh, this really, um, a sort of a psychopathic, uh, creature in the end. Right. And, um, it doesn't, you know, he shows up, he shows up with enough time to be desperate, you know, banging on the glass while she walks out. That's sort of his his part in the ending. I know what you're saying in that why spend all this effort in having all these these three characters right, 108 minutes interact for so long and in such a complex fashion only to take one of them out of the climactic interaction. But because an interesting thing that they could have done is, you know, he has to decide like at the end of the day, is he on Ava and Kyoko's side or is he on the side of the humans? Like he it would be interesting if they had made him choose a side in that corridor. Hmm. That's true because he in the, he never gets to. Ch- I mean, he does choose a side because he chooses her side, and in that do, in so doing, but that's not a battle to the death. Correct. 
Right. They could have had it, him it, come in and try to save, um, you know, try to save Nathan or right. It, would have been, it just would have been interesting because, again, you know, he's he's happy to plot against Nathan, but he doesn't really plot to harm Nathan, right? But again, everything's different when somebody is sticking a knife between your ribs. Which, by the way, uh, Ava literally twists the knife. Oh uh, yeah. But you know, like it just—I don't know. They, they. I think that's the big, big glaring problem for me in this movie is because hmm. that that end scene is phenomenal. I mean, it is the payoff. I mean, it's a long, slow burn. This movie, mm-hmm. and there is a payoff. I mean, some movies that we've talked about didn't get that, but you know, they really, really do give you a rewarding finish that wraps up all the the notes. But but could they have done it different? Makes you wonder if they filmed other versions too. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Although I overall I still like it a lot. Like I I I I know what you're saying and you're right, but at the same time I don't mind this ending. I think this ending is still satisfying to me. Like you're right, but it doesn't yeah, no, it, it doesn't I make agree. it unsatisfying. Yeah, no no, and again it works well within the the version of the movie, but it just is this the best possible version of the movie they could have given us? I don't know. Hmm, interesting. You know, it's interesting if you compare this like I was thinking about because we talked about Solo a week or two ago, and, you know, Solo has that essentially played for laughs, the idea that the robots want to sort of, like, throw off the domination of the organics. But, you know, like, it shows you, like, how in some movies, AIs can be presented as, you know, your buddy, your pal, the trusted sidekick, right, C-3PO, R2, Robbie the robot, right, Mm -hmm. you know, who would never harm you. Mm-hmm. Or, or it's very, very easy to sort of just turn that a little bit, and then they become malevolent. Or, like for example, like an iRobot, right? Like once, once the AIs, you know, want a little of freedom and autonomy, then the whole thing turns on its ear. Mm-hmm. You know, and sci-fi has sort of like investigated that from a million angles over the years. Yep. Like even like the Lost in Space robot, who's by the way, you know what the Lost in Space robot name is. It's actually relevant to this discussion. I can't remember. His name is B-9 for, get it, benign. Like, right. he's not going to hurt you. He's B-9. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's just sort of interesting, I guess, the idea that, like, there's a spectrum of, like, you know, super-duper friendly robots, you know, with BB-8 and R2-D2 on one end, right? And then on the other end, you know, you've got Hal and Ava and uh, other malevolent robots. Right. Ed 209 from uh, RoboCop. <laughs> uh, wow, you got Star Trek and RoboCop in this I one. Know. I'm impressed. <laughs> I'm working. There's not too um, many not too many ways to shoehorn Ed 209 references in I know, although it's kind of relevant here. And I guess yeah. even RoboCop, you know, and even even the movie RoboCop, the the, the good Paul Verhoeven one I'm talking about, not the right. remake. Of course, um, you know, even that is sort of about like is is um, is the Peter Weller character like is he a man? Is he a machine? Like what is right. he? Is he good? Is he have morality? Like what is he? And like that's what that whole movie sort of dances around, right? What's and the man the- part, the man part makes him good in that movie. You right, know, like the remnant of his his humanity is what what in the end makes him good. Right, exactly. I'm trying to remember what his character's name is in RoboCop. I don't remember. Uh, Alex J. Murphy <laughs> <laughs> slash RoboCop is his name in that movie. Um, 
So uh, when I when I saw RoboCop, <laughs> this is a funny side story. When I saw RoboCop with my dad, um, I guess what year is it? 1987. I don't know if you remember, but at the end of RoboCop, like there's this huge confrontation at the board meeting where like you know RoboCop is like you can't fired. harm members of this company. Right. And my father saw it about half a second. He right. couldn't figure out half a second before. And my father in the theater blurted out, "You're fired!" And then they went, <laughs> "You're fired!" on screen, and like the whole theater turned and looked at my dad. <laughs> And I was like, hey, that was pretty good. <laughs> like, I certainly didn't see that coming. <laughs> My dad had worked in the corporate world. So I guess, that, you know, that's like a corporate kind of. <laughs> He'd also seen about, you know, every sci-fi movie, you know. Since the 40s. Right. Um, but anyway, but I don't know. I mean, I, I, I got to give him a lot of props for making this movie. Like, you know, uh, to, 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 to borrow a phrase from Kubrick, you know, like it's the... Um, what did, what did Kubrick say? Like, like the uh, oh, Kubrick had a phrase about a good science fiction movie about how hard it was to make. Yeah, uh, I'll see if I can find it. But he had um, Kubrick. He's he was um, there was a phrase that he used when people said to him like, "Why are you making a sci fi movie?" And he said that there's a there's a kind of movie I want to do. But now I can't find it, but I'll figure yeah. it out. Well, I mean, this uh, look. I think this it's this is something people should see, especially if they're if they're the, our audience. You know, you really if you haven't seen this one because it was it made money, but it was not a major film, um, and, and it's it's certainly worth seeing, and, and it's worth seeing for the looks, for the setup, for the effects, of course, for also for the plot, which is interesting, for the acting, which is good. Um, especially, uh, uh, Nathan, um, uh, Oscar Isaac and Alicia Vikander, the robot, those two are really, you know, they're all good. Um, but they have the best two parts. They Alicia have great Vikander parts. And Oscar Isaac. And they really do it justice. They do a great, it's, they're really solid and, uh, and just, it's certainly worth seeing. It's, it's a really interesting and well-made science fiction movie and it, it's incredible what you can do with it with a small group of players on a relatively small set for what is today a relatively small amount of money. But, it, you know, and as we've talked about before, it all comes down to the writing, right? Yep. Like you could this this movie could have had all these effects and looked just as great. And if the story was sucked. Right. Or was presented in a sort of a puerile, puerile or juvenile way, like it would have been bad. But like, you know, they got it right. They yep. got it right. Yeah, it's um, a really good one. And I think like, you know, I would put this in with, you know, Gravity or some of Chris Nolan's films like like Interstellar or um, what's the one about the the, the dreams uh, Inception. Yeah, Inception, you know, like it, those it's are sort big, of like, big pictures, though. But yeah, right, but conceptually, uh, it, yeah. Right. Or even Children of Men. Right. It's sort of like the high the sort of high concept science fiction movies of the last 10 or 15 years. I really like District 9, too. That's a uh, it's it's not it's not as um, high concept. It's got sort of a, a grubby undercurrent to it. Um, but it's I think it was it was excellent also. <laughs> You know, the, I love District Nine, and I don't think we've done a podcast on it. But the one thing that I that really I think we did actually did we? I can't even remember. It was a, a um, fairly early. But you know, the one thing that sort of let me down about District Nine is is that Neil Blomkamp hasn't been able to live up to it. You know what I'm saying? Like, right. like his movies have been, and no disrespect to Neil Blomkamp if he's listening, ha. Huh? Um, <sighs> 
but his movies are a direct dive downward. You know, yeah. Elysium is terrible. Chappie is unspeakably bad. I like Chappie uh, more than you did. I just uh, found I thought Chappie was very, very hard to watch, but I like the I like the thought behind Chappie. I just wanted to hit myself in the head with a hammer while I was watching Chappie. Chappie was a little tough. Yeah, and it wasn't fun, and it was just I just found it incredibly off-putting. And you know, like he's made now three of these movies that had the same sort of like dirty, grubby, high-tech feel, and like he needs to show that he's got a little range, and he hasn't done that yet. But anyway, I don't want to I don't want to derail this podcast and 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 bash Neil Blomkamp, but but ooh. Um, <laughs> Uh, and you know we didn't. I don't. We haven't talked about it. But Alex Garland also. I think he didn't. He do Annihilation. Yes. It's is that still out or did it just leave? It anyway, came it's, and it, we yes. haven't done a podcast on Annihilation. Which, no. Well, I didn't which, see it. It's a. Uh, it's it's a it's a big uh, step down from this. Like no kidding. It's, it's a huge step down. It makes utterly no sense. Like it. Aww. Like I mean. They had all the right ingredients. And I think I've used this phrase before. Like they had the best eggs and the best milk and the best cream and the best sugar. And they made a cake that sucked. You know what I mean? Like they had all the ingredients. Like they have a great cast and they have, and believe it or not, Oscar Isaac's in that too. Yeah. Um, and they just had everything and it literally is a mess. Like hmm. they, they put everything that was good in the trailer and, and the, the movie itself. It doesn't make any sense. And the ending is an incredibly, it's just a fizzle. Like it's, it's just build, build, build. I remember when I saw Annihilation, I said to my wife, like we were watching and I said, you cannot do 90 minutes of build up without a big finish. And it doesn't have a big finish. It goes nowhere. What a drag. Yeah. Um, hard to top the, uh, the, uh, the space fetus looking at the earth. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Um, no one's but, topped you know, it yet. But, you know, to, just to get back to Kubrick, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm just sort of all over the place here, but it also makes you realize how hard it is to be consistent. You know what I'm saying? Like, Dread is great. Ex Machina, unbelievable. Annihilation, no. You know, like, it's one thing to be great. It's another thing to be great and consistent. And then when you think about who can really do that, like, then you're you're down to a very, very small number of directors that can, you know, it can really just consistently hit it out of the park. Maybe a single digit number of people in the last hundred years. Well, the other thing to defend the directors in general is that most of them don't have the degree of creative control that Kubrick. Spielberg. Um, right. Right. Yeah, Woody Allen. Right. right. And, you know, there are guys that basically they just hand make their movies and they're not designed. There's no oversight. They're not designed by committee. Nobody has final cut. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'd be willing to bet that Alex Garland is not, not in that group and right. that, you know, right. he might've wanted to make something terrific and it got, it got pounded into, into uh, submission. You know, it got right, pounded right. into something much different and worse. Right. Most directors don't have the freedom of a Kubrick or an Ingmar Bergman. Right. You know, to say the least. I mean, you're not going to see a lot of people making Barry Lyndon. Right. No, no. And there'll, there'll be probably never be another movie like Barry Lyndon. I don't even know if there's ever going to be another director with that degree of freedom. I mean, there might be some on with television production now on on the uh, streaming channels on whatever. I mean, they might have more freedom on Amazon and Netflix and, but I think in the theater, 
those days are over. Yeah, although I guess I guess somebody could do it if they if they I guess maybe you know what Jim Cameron has that right. I, I guess sort of who else these days? Maybe Spielberg and Jim Cameron. That's maybe. about it, right? Maybe money talks. So right, exactly. When when your last two films have made you know over a billion dollars, you know you can you can do a lot. But they'll um, lose that in one film. You know, if they made one, uh, you know, one film that one stinker flaw. yeah they they're done right and did i think kubrick financed a lot of his own films you know like at the yeah. end of a lot of his movies it says written directed and produced by stanley kubrick so you know he he was if he was taking the financial risk and he could get away with a lot more so well man we always come back to kubrick always <laughs> yeah i know you well, can't get around him you know how can you, you not can't. You're talking about a science fiction film that is fundamentally based on artificial intelligence. You, you can't. How are you going <laughs> to? Right. It features a reclusive genius with a beard. <laughs> All oh, right, man. Should we wrap there? Yeah, let's let's go. Wrap. This was a good one, though. If you haven't seen it and if we haven't ruined every last secret and spoiler that this movie had, yeah. run out and see it. And if you have seen it, go back and see it again, because, you know, there's been a lot more talk of AIs and the singularity in the, in the couple of years since this movie came out. So it's definitely worth a rewatch. And again, I liked it more the second time. Uh, I really I liked it. And, and even if we spoiled it for you, you're still going to like watching it because it, it looks so good. It looks so good in the tone and the development of it. And it's so good. So I, um, it's, you're still going to like it. All right. See All right, guys. Time. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Doug.